As uh, Dustin mentioned, we started our three-week series for Christmas here that we titled A Branch, a Baby in Bethlehem. Next week we'll address the, uh, the concept of Bethlehem, why Bethlehem is important. And that's actually looking really forward to because it's one I've never done before when I haven't even considered. Um, last week, Dustin, he took the easy one, a branch. Um, I gave him a choice. He could do any of the three, and he jumped on that immediately, and probably with good reason, because I really struggled this week. I did, though, I did Bethlehem last week. I did all the work on it, and I called Dustin, I think, once or twice and told him how excited I was working through it. Um, this one was much more challenging, because this one, um, the best way to describe it is there are times where you can open up the Bible and just preach a passage, and that, I think, is easy, um, in spite of what one famous... Um, megachurch pastor has said recently about how expository preaching is the lazy way out. I think it's the easiest thing to do is to open up the scriptures and walk through a text because all you got to do is tell people what it says. you got to do your work on it. But it's God speaking. Your job is just to be the messenger, right? A message like this morning is a little bit um, more difficult because, man, you got to cover a lot of ground. and you got to do a lot of reading. And then you got to figure out how to congeal it and put it all together and what needs to be shared and what doesn't need to be shared. It becomes highly theological. You're bouncing around a lot. And so I think I spent probably on average four to five hours a day for the last week and a half just trying to work on this. So if it comes across a little bit um, cumbersome, if it comes across as maybe a little bit heavy, there's some reasons for that. I'm going to expect you to do some work this morning because we're going to be moving all over the scriptures. We're going to read a lot. So get your fingers and thumbs ready to be flipping pages and stuff. We're looking at the concept of Jesus coming as a baby. It's been asked, why did God have to send Jesus as a baby? Why couldn't he just send him as a 30-year-old man, fully grown, to come to die to pay the penalty for our sins? It's a good question. We know if we look at the Old Testament... Um, in fact, I did a series years ago called um, Jesus in Genesis and looked at all the examples of where Christ appeared on earth in human form through the book of Genesis. And he did. It's referred to as Christophanies or Theophanies, where what we typically see is when God came down in some form or spoke to somebody here on earth, that is generally the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God appearing in human form. One of the individuals that walked with Abraham when the angel came down would have been Christ presenting himself in human form. Now, why couldn't God have just done that? In fact, he ate. Remember that? Why couldn't he have just done that? Well, there's reasons for it, and the Bible actually answers those questions for us. Why he had to come as a baby, why he had to be born, take on human flesh. And so I'm going to try to look at four reasons that I believe the scriptures have highlighted for us why he had to come as a baby, why he literally had to be born to a woman. Now, the first one um, is probably going to be the easiest one for us, Um, and it's simply this. He had to be born as a baby simply to fulfill prophecy. Now, the others are going to be a little more technical, but... The first answer is Jesus needed to be born as a baby in order to fulfill prophecy because that's what God said would happen. Okay? According to Matthew, Jesus' birth as a baby was a direct fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 18. 
Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Look at verse 22. Now, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. He then goes on and he quotes from Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son And he called his name Jesus. And so Matthew, right out of the gate, tells us Jesus had to be born as a baby because Isaiah the prophet told us that's exactly how he would arrive. And think for a moment about Joseph here. Here he is, minding his own business, living his own life as a faithful Jewish person, has his betrothed Mary... We don't know at what point he was going to be traveling to pick her up and marry her, but we know that that's probably coming soon. And all of a sudden, out of the clear blue, an angel shows up and says, guess what, your wife's pre- or your wife-to-be is pregnant. But it's by the Holy Spirit. And one of the ways that he comforts Joseph ultimately here is to remind, in some respects, this is what I prophesied would come. And so you could imagine as Joseph, if this would have happened, if there was no Old Testament reference, would probably be freaking out. What? This is a little bit weird. Who are you? Angel, right? I'm not sure. This is just strange. But to be able to recall, oh, this is exactly what was promised and prophesied. And now I've got this angel telling me this has now come to pass. So it was a direct fulfillment of Old Testament Prophecy. Isaiah actually goes on in chapter 9 and he says this, that the Messiah would come as a child. He says, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest upon his shoulders. Now Isaiah wasn't alone in prophesying that the Messiah would come as a baby. Moses actually alluded to the Messiah coming in this way when he twice referred to the Messiah coming as a seed. Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. Jump back there with me. Genesis 22, verse 18. God is now reporting to Abraham about the coming of his descendant who would ultimately become the Messiah and would bless not just Jews, but Gentiles. Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. I'll start at verse 17. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed, your descendant, as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed, get that? Your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That use of that word seed there, is used specifically of physical, earthly 
human descendants. You know what? It actually started all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. I want you to flip over there with me. Genesis chapter 3. We've referred to this many, many times. By now, you are many Hebrew scholars and seminarians because you know that the passage I'm turning to, Genesis chapter 3, has what's referred to as the Proto-Evangelon, the first gospel. Okay? You could share that with anybody you want and they'll think you were educated, right? All right. Genesis chapter 3. Look down into um, verse uh, 13. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, and more than every beast of the field, and on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between, look at this, your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel, Now, in the case there, seed, referring to Satan, is not necessarily physical descendants. refers to those associated with him. But in the case of the woman there, this reference to her physical human descendant, it's the first reference to the Messiah. He would ultimately crush the head of Satan, and Satan would bruise his heel. It's a reference to the crucifixion. This is exactly what Paul referred to when he wrote his introduction to Romans. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, Paul writes this, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised, look at this, beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, what? Who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. What does Paul say there? This was prophesied beforehand that the Messiah would be born as a descendant of David, that he would actually come in the flesh. The only way for that to happen is to be born as a baby. Now, why is this important? It's important because the nature of Jesus' birth and the events that surround it, so not just that very night, but probably the first couple of years, were signs were the proof that the promised Messiah had come. The scriptures actually tell us that. Let me read to you Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 10. It says, But the angel said to them, these are the shepherds, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. We saw that in the sidewalk prophet song that we just sang. Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, look at this, there has been born. There's been a physical birth. For you, as a Savior who is Christ the Lord, this will be a sign. You'll find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. So what the angel told the shepherds was that there's a, there's a sign. What is a sign? A sign is proof. The proof that the Messiah is here is a little baby that you're going to find in a manger wrapped in clothes in Bethlehem. Luke chapter 2, verse 34, when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple on his eight-day birthday, Simeon was there. We're told that Simeon was told that he would see the Messiah before he died. 
They bring Jesus to him as an eight-year-old baby. And Simeon says, I'll read the whole verse. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child, this baby, is appointed for the fall and the rise of many. And what? Will be a sign to be opposed. He'll be the proof that he's the Messiah. It's interesting. God didn't just promise us a Messiah would come. He told us exactly how that Messiah would arrive so that there would be no question. Think about this. You kids, I want you to count with me. He was a baby. Put up one thumb. He was a baby. That's what it said. He was prophesied, or the Old Testament said he'd be a baby. He'd be born, right? That's two. Let me see your fingers. He was born to a virgin. He was a descendant of David. He'd be born in Bethlehem. He would then flee to Egypt. And then he would leave Egypt and go to Nazareth. How many, Nazareth? How many is that? How many fingers you got to hold up? Okay? Now there was one more prophecy given. And that would be the weeping that Rachel would do. Remember, Rachel was the wife of Jacob. And it said, when Micah prophesied, that she would weep over what would happen in Jerusalem, at, or I mean in Bethlehem, at the birth of Jesus. Remember what Herod did? Herod, when he found out that the king was going to be born in Bethlehem, basically had all the babies two years and under killed. Okay? That's how many prophecies? All right, now, I know you don't have enough fingers for this next thing, but you might have enough fingers and toes. There was a professor back in the 1940s and 50s, I think I've actually got his name here, um, Peter Stoner was his name. And he was a statistician, dealt with probability. And he asked his students to help him with a project. He wanted them to calculate the odds that one man could fulfill just eight of the over 200 prophecies in the Old Testament regarding Messiah. He just wanted to do eight. Okay? So they calculated everything from the, the population in Bethlehem at the time and the world population, all this stuff to figure out with their statistical model, what were the chances that one man could fulfill just those eight prophecies? Anybody want to guess what they came up with for an answer? It would be one out of so many. Trillion? I don't know because the answer is 17 zeros after the number. So it would be one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, some of you really young kids don't know what that means, but it basically means you take a one and you put, okay, we got to use our fingers and our toes, okay? Seven, if there's 10, and then seven of your toes. So if you could, I don't know if some of you have it pens, write down a one and put 17 zeros after it. What that means is that the chance of Jesus one man fulfilling just the eight prophecies in the Old Testament about his birth coming as a baby would be one man out of one followed by 17 zeros. I mean, that's not trillion. That's trillions of trillions of trillions. I heard one man describe it this way, and this might be a better visual image. Okay? You take the state of Texas, okay? And you take silver dollars. Everybody know how big a silver dollar is? About that big? And you stack silver dollars... You start at the border of Texas and you start putting little silver dollars down and cover the whole entire state of Texas with silver dollars. And then you go back and you do it again. And then you do it again until you have silver dollars stacked two feet high across the whole entire state of Texas. 
And there's only one red silver dollar out of all those silver dollars. And somebody drops you from an airplane on a parachute right down into Texas and you just happen to land and stick your hand right in and pull out that one red silver dollar. That's the chance of one man fulfilling the prophet. Eight, just eight of them. Now, going out to just 48, there's almost 200 of them, but just filling 48 prophecies, the same professor has students calculated would be one in one followed by 147 zeros. My, what's my point in all this? The reason Jesus had to come as a baby was because God said, I'm going to make this so concrete. I'm going to provide you with the proof you need. I'm going to give you a sign, and that sign is that God is going to come down in the flesh, in the form of a baby, to a virgin, descendant of a certain specific line. He's going to be born right in the city, this little tiny town of Bethlehem, this somewhat insignificant little city. It wasn't totally insignificant. Eight different things. He specifically lays out that would happen so that it would serve as a sign, that there would be no guesswork. Now, there were others who had come, prior to Jesus, that claimed to be the Messiah, but none of them could claim that. None of them could. When the religious leaders of the day were all freaked out about what was happening, and Dustin and I will get to this in the book of Acts, all freaked out because of what the apostles were doing, naming this Jesus as Messiah, one particular religious leader stands up among them and basically says, you guys, you guys know what have ha- what's happened in the past, right? Other guys have done this. And what's happened? It's just kind of died off, disappeared. None of those saviors could claim what Jesus Christ could claim. I'm the only one that came as a baby to a virgin, Senator of David, city of Bethlehem. I'm the only one that fled to Nazareth, or fled to Egypt, got ran out of Egypt, went back to Nazareth, was raised there. I'm the only one that was born at a time when Rachel wept over the slaughter in Bethlehem. So it served as a sign. So that's our first reason, I believe, that the scriptures lay out that Jesus had to come as a baby because it fulfilled a very specific, exact set of prophecies to give us the proof that we need. Look at the second one. Now, the second one kind of provides the what's needed for the third and the fourth one. And the, so the second one is that Jesus needed to be born as a baby in order to become fully human. And that's going to be critical for us. The two greatest miracles, I believe, that have ever occurred on earth were the incarnation and the resurrection. They're both central to the gospel. Without those two, you do not have the gospel. Now, the incarnation, the word incarnation is simply a Latin phrase, or Latin word, and it literally means to become flesh. Okay? It's a fancy theological term. That's the second word you can use. Keep that proto-evangelon term in your, you know, right down the front of your Bible so you can talk big words, right? Listen, another big one. Incarnation. It means to literally become flesh. It refers to God in the person of Jesus Christ, coming down from heaven and not just taking on flesh like he did in the Old Testament in the sense of being a theophany, sort of looking like flesh, being able to eat, but 
actually going a step further and becoming fully human. John actually describes this in the Gospel of John, the first chapter. I want you to turn there with me. We're going to do some more reading here. John chapter 1. Follow along with me. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word, there is a reference to Christ. The second person of the Trinity. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we've defined here already that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is just that. He is God. He was in the beginning with God. We know that because he helped create everything. We're told that in the book of Genesis. And all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. We find that in the book of Colossians. He was active in creation. He was there with the Heavenly Father. Everything we see was created because of him. That's the work he was doing. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. I believe that Christ was probably the one who breathed into Adam and created life. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. So we're told about the second person of the Trinity, God himself in heaven, doing the work that he had done. Jump down into verse 14 now, though. And the word, this second person of the Trinity, the Son, who was God, it says, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory as the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what we find is that God himself, in the person of his Son, came down, took on human flesh, became fully human, and walked among us. That is a concept that ought to blow your minds. Paul also describes this in Philippians chapter 2. Turn there. Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he was willing to let go of certain, the practice of certain godly attributes. Verse 7, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, the language there refers to him being found in the form of, in the appearance of. Well, we know that that's a way of describing taking on literal human flesh and becoming human because it then goes on to say that he was able to experience death. Now, there's a third big word for you. You can write down the word kenosis if you want to. You're building these great theological terms. This passage refers to the kenosis. It's another stupid seminary trick. So, what Paul describes here is, is Jesus 
coming down as the second person of the Godhead, emptying himself, meaning not that he gave up being God, but rather he stopped the exercise of certain divine attributes. We find that what Jesus did is he subjected himself by not exercising certain things like omnipresence while he was here. In fact, we're told, he tells us himself, that he had to completely depend upon the Holy Spirit here on earth as an example to us. When he's standing before Pilate, he said, you don't realize, I could have called down 10,000 angels. I could have squashed you like the cockroach you are. But you know what? Why didn't he do it? Why didn't he strike back when he was struck by the guards? He didn't exercise the authority he had. He didn't exercise the divine attributes that he had being fully God. So he didn't give up being God. What he did was he took on humanity, and in order to do that, he had to, had to basically not exercise certain divine attributes, because we don't have those attributes. And so he subjected himself to full humanity. Now, one thing I need to clarify here, what's interesting is that sinfulness is not a requirement for humanity. Why do we know that? Because Adam and Eve were sinless before they sinned. So what Jesus didn't take on was sinfulness. He took on humanity fully, but we're told without sin. Now because all of us are born under sin now because of the fall, it's impossible for us to choose not to sin especially without Christ, without the Spirit. So what Paul and John describe here is Jesus coming down from heaven as God and becoming fully human. Now, in order for this to happen, it required two things, supernatural conception and human birth. Plain and simple. Look at Luke Chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 26. I'm going to wait till I hear the pages stop turning. I can't hear that if you're using your electronic Bibles. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name his name Jesus. Now, up until this point, it sounds just fairly normal, doesn't it? You're going to conceive and have a baby. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, at this point, Mary could be thinking, okay, so I'm going to have a baby. Uh, She might be assuming that it would be Joseph's. Right? But she knows there's a problem with that. But everything up until this point could have been fulfilled, if you think about it, just by normal conception. Right? 
should have a baby. He could reign. God could make him king. Mary, verse 34, says, How can this be since I am a virgin? I haven't had relationship with a man. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who is called is, or called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing, nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary understood that this was a supernatural conception. What is now implanted in her mind is that I'm going to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit and will give birth to a son. In fact, in her Magnificat, where she praises the Lord for it, she even refers to him as her Savior. Does that mean she fully, completely, totally comprehended everything? Maybe, maybe not. She marveled when Simeon gave his prophecy. But I think she had a pretty solid understanding based on her Magnificat of what was about to happen, and she understood that this will be a supernatural conception. And so the Bible clearly lays out that Jesus had to be both fully God, but also fully human. And in order for him to be fully human, it required being born of a woman. It's the only way it could have happened. He couldn't have just dropped him down here as a 30-year-old man. It would have been nothing more than a theophany from the Old Testament. Looking like, acting like, maybe feeling like, but he wouldn't have been human. The Son of God did not become man until conception. Plain and simple. So the reason why both the humanity and divinity of Jesus are important will become clear now as we move forward, but that has to take place. And so the second reason that Jesus had to be born as a baby is because God had to establish him Make him fully man, because only fully God and fully man could accomplish the next two things that we're going to talk about. It would have only happened as a baby. And not only that, but it's our proof, is it not? So let's move on to the third point, the third reason. Jesus needed to be born as a baby in order to become our perfect high priest. And this is critical as well. The role of the high priest was to serve as a mediator between God and man. God is holy, perfect, and just. Man is not. So there needs to be some mediator, some, somebody to work between us. And I was raised in a Catholic church, and the priests are considered to be mediators. The priest stands before me and God. And he's able to absolve me of my sins, according to the Catholic church. You know, I can go to him for absolution. He can give me penance to do. You know, there's all these things. The priest is a mediator, stands between me and God. But the Bible says Jesus Christ is my mediator. I only need one mediator between me and God. And it's Jesus Christ himself. And the reason that's possible is because he became the perfect high priest. And so the role of the priest is to serve in that role. I just want you to look at um, Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to bounce around in Hebrews quite a bit here. 
Hebrews chapter 5, just the first two verses, and we're going to repeat some of these as I make my points here. Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 1, says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided, since he himself is also beset with weaknesses. So what does is, what is Paul tell, or what does the author of Hebrews tell us here? That we assign priests, or at least in the Old Testament, they would assign priests. Remember, God set aside one of the tribes of Israel, the Levites, to specifically serve as priests. There's a whole section in the Old Testament, the book of um, Exodus, a couple of chapters that lay out the consecration of the priests. And their job was really only one thing, intercede between Israel and God. And one of their jobs was to go and make sacrifices, to atone for sin. And that was left primarily to the high priest. He would go into the Holy of Holies, they would tie a rope around his feet because they were afraid if he died in there they wouldn't get him out. So they would have the high priest go in and he would make the atoning sacrifice for sins for Israel. That was his job. Because without some type of atonement, Israel could not be right before God. Something had to be done for sin. Now that we know through the New Testament now that what they did was purely symbolic, that their sacrifices couldn't actually forgive sin, but it was still something they did to represent, you need somebody to mediate, to to fix this problem between me, God, and you, Israel. And so... The author tells us here that was the job of the priest. So, he was to offer up sin offerings on behalf of the people, but also on behalf of himself. We're told he was to provide counsel. That was verse 2 there. He would provide counsel to the people. His job was to tell the people what God wanted, what he said, what the requirements were. Do this, don't do that. But because he was beset with his own weakness, because he was a human being, He understood sin. The passage there also tells us that he could deal gently with those who were ignorant or misguided. That was the job of the priest. Now there's a problem with that because the Old Testament priesthood was imperfect. Look at Hebrews chapter 7 verse 23. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 23 tells us this. The former priests, on the one hand, had to exist in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. In other words, you had to have generation after generation after generation of priests because they would die like everybody else. So there wasn't like one mediator that could take care of it. So you had to have this long succession of priests. Thousands of years. How many generations is that of priests? Because they just kept dying. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. Why? Because they could never take away sins. So the second problem with the Old Testament priesthood is that the priest had to constantly offer the same sacrifice over and over and over because it never really fixed the problem. Remember, it was merely a symbol, a foreshadowing of what would come at some point. But the people had to be, they had to 
keep being reminded over and over their sin. So every time they would see the high priest go in and offer the atoning sacrifice, to be reminded of their sins and the necessity for their sins to be atoned for. Because no one of those priests could offer a sacrifice that would fix it permanently for them. So every year they had to go back and do it again. Look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 3 now. Back to chapter 5. We've already mentioned this, but I'll mention it again here. Chapter 5, verse 3. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. This is a priest. As for the people, then look what it says. So also for himself. Before the priest could offer sacrifices, he had to offer a sacrifice for himself. So it's like going to the guy you need a bath from, and he's got to take a bath first because otherwise he's going to get you dirty. And so the third problem with the Old Testament priesthood system is that even the priests weren't really qualified to offer sacrifices because they themselves were sinful. So they had to purify themselves first before they could go on your behalf. It's almost kind of like going to a drug addict who's still struggling with drugs to get help with your drug problem, right? That doesn't work. So generally, what do we see? We have ex-drug addicts who counsel those who struggle with drugs. That's the kind of guy you want, not the ones that are still struggling with it. And so you look at these priests and it's, it's imperfect. That all changed with Jesus Christ because he became the perfect high priest because he was born as a baby. And we'll explain that in a minute here. Look at Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 23. And again, we'll cover some of these verses again, but... For the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, that's a great phrase, isn't it? But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever holds his priesthood permanently. Remember, one of the problems with the Old Testament priests is that they kept dying. But then Jesus comes along, becomes high priest, and he's permanent. The only priest to ever hold his position, if you will, indefinitely, forever. There's no term limits to Jesus Christ. Go verse 25. It says, Therefore he is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession. Unlike the Old Testament priests who couldn't save sinners, we're told here that Jesus himself is able to save. Why? Because he continually makes intercession for us. What Jesus Christ did is to be able to atone for our sins in a fashion that you could, in many respects, say, is ongoing. The effects of what he did last forever. Remember what we were told about the priests themselves, that they had to do this continually because their sacrifices weren't effectual. They didn't last. So we don't have to do daily sacrifices anymore Because Jesus died once for all. Look at the rest of that passage. Therefore, he is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled. Those are the words used to describe the sacrificial lamb. 
separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of other people, because he did once for all when he what? Offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. So what you find in Jesus Christ here is that he became a perfect high priest because he was holy, he was righteous, he was just, there was no sin. He was able to offer up himself as a once-for-all-time permanent sacrifice. Now why is that, why does that apply to our our, our, um, title this morning? Why was it Necessary that he come as a baby, specifically because this could not have happened if he didn't. Jesus Christ could not have been the perfect high priest without coming as a baby. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and following. I think it's 14. Because Jesus was born as a baby, we are told that he was able to free us from the power of death because he himself became flesh and blood. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, that's you and me, he himself likewise also partook of the same, what? Partook of flesh and blood. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. What does that say? That Jesus Christ, because he was born as a baby, because he came in the flesh, just like you and I are in the flesh, was able to offer the sacrifice that he did that could save us from sin. Because he suffered death so that we wouldn't have to. I want you to look at verses 15 through 18 here. It says, And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives, for assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to those descendants of Abraham. Okay? Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation. That means he was our substitute. He was the one who took death on himself instead of us. But I want you to look on something here. It says that he became merciful and faithful. Remember, part of the job of the priest was to have empathy for the ignorant, for those who would sin. And what he tells us here is that Jesus became a merciful and a faithful, merciful high priest. He understood what we struggle with. He understood the sin that we deal with every day because he himself was tempted. He was in the flesh. He was made just like his brethren. The scriptures tell us that he, he was tempted in every way that we are, but what? Without sin. Jesus knows what it's like. In fact, he faced off directly against the enemy. Taken out into the wilderness. Spoke with... How many of you have ever spoke with Satan? I mean, Jesus faced 
the kind of temptation that many of us will never face. But he did face the temptation that every single one of us faced because he came as a baby in the flesh, became fully human so that he might struggle and suffer temptation like we did, even to the point of experiencing death. That makes him the perfect high priest because that's the way a priest was supposed to be. He was supposed to understand when you came to him and he would go and he would offer the atoning sacrifice before the the heavenly father. He would recognize these people are sheep. They struggle. And so he'd be able to walk into the presence of God and make that sacrifice for the people recognizing, fully understanding what it was that led them to their sin. Remember we talked about David and how when, when Joab um, you know, kind of approached David over, over Absalom's death and you know, Joab just went out and just killed Absalom and David wanted to offer mercy to him. And one of the things I shared with you was the reason I think that David maybe responded the way that he did by mourning in the city was because he understood what it was like to be forgiven himself. Jesus never had to be forgiven, but he understood what it was to struggle, to be tempted. And that made him the perfect high priest. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have such a high priest who has passed through the heavens, meaning he was God, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us remain faithful because of the kind of high priest we have. Look at this, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace. What? To help in time of need. Jesus Christ became our perfect high priest. But in order for him to become that, it required that he take on human flesh. That's why he had to be born as a baby. It's the only way that happens. And so that's the way God started it. Sent as a baby to be like us, it says, in all things. That we might have a perfect high priest that we now, because of him, can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence because of what Christ did. Amen? Let's look at the last reason. The last reason I'm going to... And there's, there's probably others. Like I said, this is a huge subject. The last reason I'm going to highlight here that Jesus needed to be born as a baby was so that he could redeem us from the curse of the law. I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 3 with me. Galatians chapter 3. Oops. Galatians chapter 3, Paul makes this rather interesting statement. Chapter 3, verse 13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So the question that I have is, what is the curse of the law? In this passage, law is a reference to the Old Testament law given through Moses. Now, What's interesting about this book, if you could actually see behind the English and see the the Greek, you'd notice that sometimes Paul uses 
the word the with the law, and sometimes he doesn't, he just says law. And it's this interesting interplay. So just every time you see the word law, it doesn't mean the law. Sometimes it just means law in general. Okay, and there's, it's important, and I don't want to belabor that too much, but in this particular instance here, he's referring to the, the, the Hebrew law. And he says that um, we've been redeemed from the curse of, of the law that came with, with that. Now, to be cursed, actually, in the Old Testament, means to be under God's judgment or wrath. So you put those two together, and the curse of the law then refers to being under God's judgment or wrath for violating or not living up to the law of God. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3 there. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse of the law. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So you are cursed if you cannot live up to every aspect of the law. Now, you might say, well, that just applies to the Jews. Well, there's a problem with that. Romans chapter 2. This is what I said about having to jump all over the place, why this becomes difficult to sort through all this. Romans chapter 2, look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. He basically says, look, the Jews are going to, or the the Gentiles are going to perish. They don't have the law, but they're going to perish anyway. Jews are going to perish because they have the law, which means they're judged by the law. Okay? He goes on, verse 13, For it's not the doers or the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. In other words, all those who do the law, whether Jew or Gentile, whether they know it or not, whether they have the law or not, if they do it, they're justified. If they don't, they're not. Okay? Verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, look at this, These not having the law, meaning they don't have the actual written law of the Old Testament, it says what? They're a law unto themselves. But why is that? In that they show the work of the law, the Old Testament law, written on their hearts. Their conscience, bearing witness, and their thoughts, alternately accusing or defending them. What Paul's point is here, and you can go back to Hebrews now, I'm sorry, back to Galatians. What Paul basically says is this. The Jews have the written law. They get judged by it. It's pretty easy to see. You did this, this is the penalty. right? The Gentiles may not have the written law, but ultimately they have the law of God written on their hearts. Romans chapter 1 tells us that. They just suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Well, because they have the law written on their hearts, God can still condemn them by the law because... Their own conscience. I'm convinced that as many people right now that have a seared conscience, that when they stand before the judgment of Christ, that conscience will become really, really clear. They won't have to be convinced. God will be able to say, you know. And they won't be able to say, I didn't know. Right now, their consciences are seared. Not when they stand before Christ. Everything will be laid bare. And so what Paul basically does here is he says, both Jews and Gentiles are law breakers. Whether they have the written law or not. Now, elsewhere, Paul says, the Jews kind of have the advantage because they got it written for them right in front of them. Okay? 
So we've answered what the curse of the law is, that those who violate it are cursed. They're under God's judgment and wrath. How did Jesus then deliver us from the curse of the law? Well, it says this. He became a curse for us. Verse 13. Okay? Isaiah chapter 53 says this. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us are like sheep and we've gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall on him. He was cursed. He took the law, the curse of the law, upon himself so that we wouldn't have to face it. That's how he redeemed us. We're also told that he removed this curse, if you will, by making salvation possible by faith rather than having to fulfill the law. Now, if you could have lived the law perfectly, it's enough to justify you. The problem is, nobody can do it. And that's why Paul earlier says that, you know, in our Romans passage there, that those who do the law can be justified. Nobody can do it, except for one. In chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 14, it says that in order that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. What he basically says there is Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by doing two things, becoming the curse for us and by making salvation possible by faith in him who did fulfill the law. And my last point in all of this is this. In order for that to happen, in order for Jesus to take the curse upon himself, in order for him to bring about salvation by faith, he had to be born as a baby. Look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time came... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Did you catch that? Every human being is born under the law. Gentiles and Jews. And because of that, we're all cursed by the law. Because we can't keep the law. Therefore, in order to redeem us, those who are born under the law, Jesus himself needed to be born under the law. It's the only way he could face the consequences that we face. He had to be born under the law, just like we are, because somebody had to take the curse of that law. And so he put himself in a place where he became human, allowed himself to be born under the law, which meant the requirements of the law for perfection, as well as the penalty for not fulfilling it. The only way that could happen is if he took on human flesh. Subjected himself to that. And by doing that, when he fulfilled that law, made him made it possible for him then to take on the penalty for those who didn't fulfill that law, which was the curse. One last passage we'll read here. Romans chapter 8, 
verses 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's the curse of the law. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, sending Him as a baby, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, what he's saying there is that because Jesus was able to live out the law without sin, he condemned the power of sin that led us to death. The law had no effect to condemn him. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What was the requirement of the law? Perfect obedience. Perfect obedience to the law. That's one requirement. The other requirement is those who didn't get put to death. Jesus Christ met both of those. He was perfect, which means he didn't deserve death. But he also took the death that was due others. That requirement on his own shoulders. So that it might be fulfilled then in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Another way to say that is faith in Christ. So the last reason why Jesus had to come as a baby was because that was the only way he could redeem us from the curse of the law, the penalty of death. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly, and he even paid the penalty for those who couldn't. So, four reasons why Jesus had to be born as a baby as far as I can tell. One, he had to fulfill it, or had to do it because it was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. It's the only way he could have become fully human, which is a requirement for what he did next. It's the only way he could have redeemed us from the curse of the law and rescued us from sin and death. And it's absolutely the only way he could have served as our high priest. Amen?